freedom and censorship can't exist in the same world. And that's true whether it's the government or private corporations who do the censoring. Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, and welcome to the Coleman Nation podcast. It's a show where I sit down with guests to discuss the future of free expression and thought in our interconnected world. Here, we will focus on issues involving social media, cancel culture, and free expression that everybody who cares about ideas or freedom should be wrestling with. Well, every every time I do one of these culmination podcasts, I am more and more amazed at how much fun I'm having and who I get to meet. And this is another situation where you know somebody on Twitter, you know them, you interact with them for years, but you've never really hung out. And, you know, it's 2021. This counts as hanging out. And we're hanging out today with the extremely interesting and exciting Robbie Starbuck. How you doing, Robbie? That's a beautiful intro. I appreciate it. Um, No, it is. It is kind of an interesting thing because it's almost like there's an internet family and you've never met a lot of your internet family. Um, so it's always cool when you actually get the chance to, to connect over, even if it's over Zoom or if it's, you know, in person's even better, but it is, it, it is interesting. There's also a downside to it though. You know, sometimes you'll think somebody's a certain person and you'll talk to them for years and then you'll meet them <laughs> in real life and you're like, yeah, you're nothing like I thought you were. Really? Uh, you've had that? Disappointing, you know? You've actually had that where you misjudge some somebody that in that I've way? had it happen. Well, not like terribly misjudged, but where I wasn't expecting them to be the type of personality they are. You know, like it was very divorced from their what they portend to be. You know, that is very interesting. I think well, that's bad. I, I that's fascinating to me. I've, I've I have always found, of course, you know, you. I want to back up a little bit. One of the things that I found amazing, and this is going to be by way of sort of also introducing you to the two or three people who might not know who you are, or what perhaps notwithstanding your background, you're up to these days, your background, your screen background. Um, Robbie is a guy that I followed on Twitter years ago, and he followed me. And I just thought he was this interesting Twitter guy, which is fine, right? And I didn't realize that he was a showbiz guy. And he's a pretty accomplished showbiz guy. And he's a Cuban, my second favorite Cuban in the world, I'd have to say right now. Hmm. Um, I have to know who the number one Cuban is. Who is it? Well, I set you up for that, right? That's my mother, of course. Oh, okay. Still with us. Thank God. Um, uh, And Robbie is running for Congress. He lives in Nashville now. He left Hollywood because he's a good man. He left Hollywood because he's a conservative. Left Hollywood because he's a family man. And now he wants to ruin all that. And he's explained to me why he thinks it's worth it. Why he thinks it's worth going through the soul-destroying process of running for office and serving in Congress. We'll get to that in a little while. Robbie, when did you realize that that Hollywood wasn't the place for you? Well, you know, I always knew that, you know, in terms of values, we were not aligned. You know, that was something that, that I always knew. But 
you know, I kind of felt like you could coexist in, in a way for to up to a certain point, but you really, you couldn't make things overtly political or obviously that wouldn't be the case. But as we got into probably 2012, I started to see these signs that we were veering towards, you know, really the left in America becoming very attached to more of a socialist mindset um, and eventually would lead into communist mindset. And so I said, you know, I've been blessed with a platform. I already had a platform at that point because I, I had a large, you know, um, amount of big celebrities I had directed. And so a lot of people followed me to see my work on a regular basis. And I was like, I've got this platform. I could use it to spread some ideas and to just come out and, and be honest about my politics. It wasn't so much of an issue until 2015 when I came out and endorsed Trump um, because I did it early and it was very, you know, that was not a popular move in Hollywood. And it was that point where we lost about 85% of our business like that first month, really. It, really? Something like, yeah, I mean, it was immediate. It was swift with all of our, and you have to understand, I knew this would happen. I knew we would lose business. I knew that that would be the case over Trump because I knew how crazy people were getting about him. And it really was the calculation that like, whatever this is, they can never, you know, with some of the people in Hollywood who come out and talk about politics, they're kind of well past the peak of their career. You have to understand when I did this, I was at a point in my career where I was turning down jobs left and right from major studios and from major artists all over the world. And you're and like, what, 19 now? <laughs> no, I actually, believe it or not, I have a daughter turning 13 this year. Amazing. Um, these, us Cubans, we, we age really well. <laughs> yeah, so, not so much. Jubin's not so much. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, it was, it was, it was interesting to say the least. Because well, so, yeah, yeah. knowing you're at that peak, nobody can say, oh, well, these people aren't working with you because you're just past your prime or whatever. We were at the point as a business where we didn't have enough directors to take on all the jobs we were being offered. And so it was very clear this was political. And, um, you know, the only ones who didn't leave were really the ones who couldn't because the contracts were so ironclad, there was no way for them to get out. And it was, you know, they were stuck essentially for years. And then I, I also made the decision as, as a business owner that, you know, I care a lot about the jobs that we've created, the people who are in those jobs, and I wanted them to be able to keep working. And so I sort of stepped aside from day to day business and allowed other people to take that on. So that helped, you know, um, with kind of boosting things back to where those people could do what they wanted to do. Now, how did you you weren't you didn't you weren't raised in Hollywood, obviously, because as we've said, you're a real decent guy. Uh, where do you grow up? I grew up in Southern California. Um, surprisingly, not Miami, like most Cubans. A lot of my family's in Miami, but I grew up in Southern California. Um, kind of, it's the best way to ex is explain it where people will know it is it, it, like halfway between San Diego and Riverside. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, very, not a big place, um, very just normal America, you know? And so that plus my family losing everything when they came over from Cuba, those, those things really informed my view on the world, you know, growing up around people whose, you know, their parents were losing their homes, you know, my own parents lost their home, um, you know, and having that sort of basis of, of that a lot of people, a lot of Americans struggle, you know, just to make ends meet. And then on the flip side of that, you know, 
knowing that everything could be stolen from you if a government turns a certain direction. But then also the beauty of America shines through because I was always taught like every Cuban is that like the most valuable possession we have is freedom. And the fact that in America, you can do anything. And because I believed that, you know, I was one of those crazy people that believed you can do anything in this country. And it's true, you know, it really is. I graduated uh, at 15. I had finished my first year of college simultaneously with my last year of high school. I started my career really early. I was a go-getter, you know, so I went out into the world and, and worked my, my tail off and started my company. And I did it all from the ground up with no Hollywood connections, no Hollywood family. And I made my dream happen, you know, but it's also, you know, I might, I don't know if I can continue this interview. This is a level <laughs> of, of, uh, you know, uh, uh Oh, uh, I think we, all right, we're back. <laughs> okay. I, I don't know if I can continue this interview because there's a level of, uh, of achievement. I don't know if I've ever spoken to anyone who finished high school at 15 and finished college in a year. No, I didn't finish all of college in a year. I finished my first year, first of, year college of college. Obviously, oh, with my last year of high school, yeah. I get it. With the AP, you had APs in there? That part well, of I, would, I actually drove to college at night. So when oh. I was, <laughs> I would do high school during the day, and then I'd go to college at night. And I had a job, too. So that jo it wasn't a full-time job, but I had a job. Um, Cubans have a great worth ethic. I, I mean, this is going to be a love fest here. You know, someone asked me in a podcast, uh, I don't know, it's all becoming a blur to me in the last couple of days about my journey to becoming a conservative. I said, what do you mean by journey? I was raised by a Cuban immigrant. There was never any moment where I was not anti-communist, yeah. patriotic, grateful, and, and extremely cognizant of what a difference America is from everywhere else. And my mother's parents were from Poland. And, Q, and they left during Batista in 56. So, but they left Poland in 35. So keep an eye on Coleman, okay? As long as I'm here, every, you're safe. But um, it is fascinating to me that Cubans have, you know, the way Cubans have, have, have you know, have this appreciation that it seems that a lot of, Actually, no, also people from Eastern Europe. I, we have a lot of friends on Twitter who are Eastern European immigrants of different ages, and they also are the biggest patriots. I mean, why do you suppose, I mean, would you say that Latinos who from other countries, do they, what's their attitude towards the appreciation for, for, the, for America? Or, or are they even conscious of it? I mean, you tend to, I, I'm imagining that your family is was pretty well-educated. Yeah, so in Cuba, you know, they they were kind of normal people, you know, I mean, they, um, they were definitely, you know, despite what the left says, everybody was literate in Cuba, for the most part. <laughs> but, your parents were, but, but your parents were gangsters, right? That's why they left, because... Big time, big time gangsters. <laughs> no, it was, you know, it's, it's one of those things, um, I think it's hard for any other group of Latinos to be as appreciative of America as Cubans, because... Cubans really saw the worst of of the other side of the coin. So it makes it it's kind of like, you know, when you're young, a lot of people tell you if you don't know heartbreak, you'll never know love or if you don't know pain, you'll never know pleasure, things along those lines. It's kind of like that. And I think that's one of the thing that, things that really poisons young people in America is that life has been so easy for them that they don't have anything to compare 
you know, negatively to communism because the, life has just been so easy. So any minor thing that sort of uh, in any way ruffles their feathers, they see as an indictment on capitalism because they've never experienced anything actually hard. And so, you know, but in terms of the Latino question, I will say, you know, some Venezuelans, you know, are definitely on the same page and Colombians. Um, I've seen, you know, sort of have the same mindset, uh, you know, so it's, it's mixed because then there's some too, you know, that confuse me because they're from Central America or they're from Mexico and they actually have very conservative values, very conservative values. Like they would be considered far right values to the Democrats but somehow still vote for Democrats. And I think that's changing. I mean, we saw in the 2020 election, the larger voter demographic shift that we've had between the parties was Latinos. So it is changing because we're starting to break through on that messaging that, hey, look, our values are in alignment. You don't have to believe what CNN says about us. We're not all the things that they say. Um, so I think to a degree that's changing, but there's definitely a separation, you know, within the Latino community. It's very different than say, you know, the black community in America. There's a lot more like tribal elements within the Latino community where everybody kind of has different wants, needs, and and um, and it's it's very split in that regard. Yeah, I, th I think what, and I think I saw this also um, when I was involved in the um, in the Slants case with um, with Simon Tam, and I for the first time began to sort of get a, a view into the world of the politics of second generation Asians. And I saw, you know, Asians, it is well known where are, you know, they're the, the model minority, that whole thing is supposed to supposedly be a hang up. Um, they traditionally have been conservative, but I saw that a lot of people, a lot of people who were interacting with Simon and were unhappy with his attempt to get a trademark registration for the slants were 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 leftists. And I think that that what happens is that there the Democratic Party has a technique for getting across to ethnic groups that they're not really Americans, they're never really going to be accepted as Americans, and that their path to success is as people who gripe about not being accepted as Americans, you know, and I was really I just busting what they do. You know, a good example of this is um, the program I was in that allowed me to graduate early and all that. It, it's a special program in California um, that they're getting rid of now. And they're getting rid of it precisely because there's too, they say there's too many Asian Americans in the program and that it's essentially, they're calling it racist. You know, it's racist because not enough people of all races are, well, let me tell you something. In that program, your race is not a barometer of how you get in or how it works. It's all based off of work ethic. You have to have work ethic to do it. I saw the people who made it through. I saw the people who failed out. It had nothing to do with what skin color, background or anything. Some of these people came from the worst parts of town and other people came from wealthy parts of town. It was all mixed in that regard in terms of socioeconomic backgrounds. But in terms of just the one thing we all had in common that made it through was work ethic. We were the people that were willing to not go to parties, not spend time with friends all the time after school, not have all these, you know, million other things going on in our lives that are very, you know, teenage, uh, high, typical high school experience. We were willing to forego all that 
to do extra work all the time. You know, um, I would literally, I was working on the weekends on school stuff, on packets they would give me that I could do to get credits all the time. I was, I was working on that. So this is to say their ideology is built around, they know their survival rather, I should say, is built around this idea that we have to have an oppressor class and an oppressed class. And if we don't, they know that their ideology can't survive. There's not going to be enough oxygen in the room for them. It's going to, they're going to, it's going to suffocate the ideology, you know, and they know that. And so that's why they, I get asked sometimes by parents here, because we live in a red county and I'll have parents ask, why do they push the critical race theory knowing how unpopular it is? And I'm like, it's not about you. It was never about you. It's not about it being unpopular. They don't care that it's unpopular to you. It's about shifting the minds of a percentage of young people who don't have their parents paying attention, who are very highly impressionable and feel like a warm teacher trying to lead them in a certain direction is better than nothing. And they don't have a parent leading them at home. You're able to lead those kids in that direction that is why they're doing it. It has nothing to do with whether it's popular with parents or not. It's about breaking off a group of young people that they will be able to lock in as voters for at least a decade or two. Um, and so that's to say everything they're doing is built around this for a reason. It's precisely because they know it's, the, it, it's, it's predicated entirely on their survival as a party. That's right. And, and, and the, you, know, you talk about breaking off groups. You're, you're not Latino, you're white. You're white because you're conservative. Yep. So any, any conservative who is a member of a minority group is denuded of his status. Candace status. Owens is white, okay? Yes. That's what I was, right. I was, I was actually, I saw somebody seriously say that recently. You know, here's the other thing that's broken about their, their whole fixation on race, okay? What do they say to somebody like me when they find out, you know, um, I'm not Elizabeth warning anybody here. I'm actually, I'm, I do have African in me, um, but they're pretty good chunk of African, but you wouldn't be able to tell looking at me. Um, so how do they treat that? You know, what, what, what class, like at what point are we no longer judging people based on even what their actual race is? But just saying like, hey, I looked at you and you're, you look like this, so you must be all these things. You know, that's, that is literally the very first thing that you're taught as a child not to do. Is, I mean, how many of us have ever heard the phrase, don't judge a book by its cover? That's, it's basically we're professionally teaching children to judge books by their cover now and not look at the content inside. That should make everybody question exactly what we're doing here. Because we're, we're essentially saying, please ignore the information inside. Just look at the cover, make a judgment, walk away. It's it's very problematic, and it's you know someone someone my age who grew up during the you know at, at the at the end of the Martin Luther King era, but the message that we got in school in the New York City public schools in those days was about not being a prejudiced person, yeah. about you know judging people by the content of their character, um, and at the same time, my family was part of the white flight out of New York City in the early 70s when busing started and we started encountering people from another world uh, in our schools. And it wasn't, it wasn't because they were black, it was because 
they were from another world. I mean, the kids were coming in from, you know, I lived in Brighton Beach. They were busing kids in from Coney Island and they were black kids. And they were wearing what appeared to me to be underwear to school, what we would now call a t-shirt. In those days, it was unheard of to wear a t-shirt to school. You, 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 would, you, would, you would dress like a little person. And it, it was, you know, there, these culture, th those culture clashes and the way people react to them are something that are, that are complex. Uh, you know, I, was also, I started school also during the time of the famous New York City public school strike uh, um, in 60, 68, 67, 68, which was really a racial conflict between blacks in, in, in neighborhoods and a predominantly Jewish body of, of teachers. People don't understand and appreciate the history of, 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 of how politics and race relations, race relations and education, coming back to your point, are, have been manipulated for decades in this country. Now you're running for Congress. When did you decide that, first of all, you moved to Nashville two years ago. You stepped aside from the business. Did you keep something of an interest in the business? I don't want to spoil it for them if they, you know, if you're, if you're still a, a shareholder or something. Yeah, so I'm, I'm silent. You know, I'm, I'm silent in that regard. I but, get it. Good for you. Uh, Good. But out, outside of that, you know, why did I decide to do this? Um, you know, I mean, <laughs> it's I, I can't shut my mouth about politics. That's that's number one. But number two. You know, I, I've never been more disappointed with our representatives in total. Um, I feel like I spend more time around people than probably most or all of our representatives do. And so I'm on a daily basis out there talking to people, just figure, I was actually literally, I rushed here this morning because I was out meeting with a small business owner who, they almost lost their business during COVID. And they had to do some really drastic stuff, just not complying with the city and their orders. At a certain point, they were like, we just can't, we're not complying, period. And the city kept trying to scare them into shutting down. And this lady, I mean, she is, she's amazing. She, she was like, you're going to have to send the police to come here and arrest me at the restaurant, but we're not shutting down, period. And they kept setting, sending the city people to try to scare her into it, saying, oh, we're going to sue, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And she just never complied and she made it through. Wow. So I talk to these people though um, on a daily basis. And, and the number one thing I hear back is they're like, they're tired. They're tired of having these guys with perfect haircuts come in and lie to them and tell them that they're going to do all these things and stand up for them. And then the minute they actually get elected, the first thing they do is stab their voters in the back. If, if somebody so much as, you know, calls their voters terrorists. They don't even defend them. They don't even actually try to make any sort of defense, let alone have an offensive message. And that's really the other part of it is that, you know, I look back at 25, 35 years of history uh, over these past 25, 35 years, and I ask myself, what have we conserved aside from the jobs of politicians who failed us? And I can't find a good list for you that says, hey, we actually preserved our culture in some way, or we, we did this or we did that. It's always seeding ground just little by little. And eventually you look back and it seems like we seeded a lot of ground, you know? And so I, I'm tired of this ideology that you have to play defense all the time, because if this is a basketball game, we're leaving five people on defense. We've got a group of people in DC who think that if you only give up four points and you lose by four, it's a win. It's not a win. It's a loss. So you and get, 
So let me get you, you know, past election day, 2022, yeah. you've done it. They didn't kill you with redistricting and you beat the Democrat and you're there and you have observed what has happened to someone like um, Margaret Taylor Greene, who is an example of someone who is, it seems, is trying to do very much like what you're describing, which is stay on offense, focus on, you know, not accepting losses as wins, all those things you just described. First thing that happens is she's stripped of all the committee seats. Yeah. Include with the votes of many of her fellow Republicans, exactly the kind of craven nothings that, you, you know, that I, I don't want to say you, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that we're talking about. How do you avoid that having to Robbie Starbuck? Yeah, so I, to be perfectly honest, I'm just I'm more polished and I understand how this all works. You know, um, okay, I think I'll, she, I'll spot you that. I don't think in terms of being more polished than she is, I think we can probably agree yeah. that you so, are. And that's not an indictment on her. It's, you know, no. she came in, I think, not fully, not fully understanding the dynamics of D.C. Now, see, one of my strengths is I've worked in a business with leftists for a, a long time and I know how they think. I know how they work. And a lot of their mindset is the same, you know, the egocentric narcissistic mindset is, is sort of the same sort of thing you encounter in large part in DC period, no matter what side of the aisle, you know, you're on. There's good people, you know, no doubt, but we have sort of an overflow of people who um, could be replaced. And so I think that the ability that we have on messaging and the ability we have in terms of knowing what the guardrails are is gonna help a lot to make sure that they can't do the types of things to me that they can do to somebody like her, you know, because frankly, I, I'm, I'm not mistake prone, you know, that's something I think, you know, pretty well on my feet. And I'm, I think a lot ahead of time about how I'm going to frame what I say in a way that can be received the most positively by the people. Yes. I mean, I can tell you're as a Twitter user, you're a, a careful tweet, a careful tweeter. You're not someone who gets into the mud the way I do. I don't rage tweet. <laughs> you do not. Yeah, well, rage is something that is, is and frankly, it's very popular among leftists because it's a, you know, as a director know, it, it, emotional moments are very compelling. They make yeah. great theater. It's all theater. It's all the rage, the car rants, all this crap. All the throwing people what rolling around on the grass. What better thing to have if it's all theater than a director? Yes. No. I. I. You know. I just occurs to me that that really is a, is something that we could we could talk about because it really is so much street theater and it is a show and so much of it is is awful. Yeah. I mean, when they all went out with kinte cloths and kneeled in the <laughs> I mean. Talk about what should end up on the cutting room floor. I mean, what this is garbage, garbage theater, garbage theater. But you understand, as you said, the messaging issue, and you and you obviously understand. You know, this is sort of the theme that I eventually have to get around to for topical purposes. That messaging is only effective when you can get your message out. Yes. Yes. So let's talk about that. What what sort of things? As a junior congressman, do you think you could if, possibly do to deal with the, the situation involving social media censorship? Yeah, so um, 
First, I would say the important thing is how you get a message out. Um, and so social media is not the only barometer for that, but it is very helpful. And so I think one of the things we need to do and prioritize, and I'm obviously, I'm already in communication with many members of Congress and, and senators now. And so I've already had this discussion with quite a number of them that one of my utilities there is gonna be ensuring that, that we can have a cohesive message that is pushed together. The left is great at using the power of the collective to shape and control a narrative. We are stuck on the side where we respond to the narrative they set. We have to stop doing that. We have to suck the air out of all of their stuff by us setting the narrative. And we do that by acting cohesively together as a collective. And I know that's uncomfortable for a lot of us because we're individualists by nature, but doing that has a serious magnitude of power behind it because you know, take for instance, do you see the, the critical race theory video that I posted of the that that amazing dad and his beautiful black daughter? I mean, they're just the cutest yes. things ever. Everyone saw that. That was so great. I, I pushed that. It had like maybe like 500 views when I found it. And so I asked the guy, Corey, I was like, hey, are you cool if I blow this up? Because I don't want it to, you know, cause problems at your work or anything. You know, I didn't know how far he was willing to have it go. And he's like, yeah, go for it. It got over 50 million views. You know, it ended up, um, I got him booked on Fox and Friends, on Candace Owens, on you know, basically every show on our side. My question to you, though, is imagine every member of Congress pushed that video at the same time. Every member. We control the narrative then. And then guess what? Not just people on our side have to cover it, but then the view is going to have to cover it. And then CNN is going to have to touch on. They're going to have to like, this is how you control a narrative. If we suck the life out of what they're doing and we refuse to respond, all of us uniformly to their, their narrative setting attempts. And instead they see we are all doing this one thing and we've produced 500 million views on a video like that. That helps set a narrative and we have to learn how to use the social science of that that type of thing to help craft and create narratives so that we can push our message out with an offensive message and sell what we actually want to push. We That's can't constantly defend what we want to push. We have to define it because for so long we've allowed the Democrats to define what our policies and who we are. That has to stop. And the only way it stops is if you have an actual offensive plan. And so that's something that I'll be very focused on. But in terms of the social media side of things. But actually, you know, it's I asked you I asked you that question and I'm going to therefore you're, I, I just want to you, you were wise to not answer it until you got to the you said, LeBron, let's first talk about what we want to say more than what we are being prevented from saying. And I want to talk about that a little bit more before we get back to this, because it's before your time. Have you had a chance to meet Newt Gingrich? I think I met him in passing um, about a year ago, but we hope, it wasn't like a close, a close deal. Yeah, I hope you have the opportunity, and certainly if you're elected, you will, with God's help, to meet him and talk to him. When the Republicans took Congress with the um, the um, the contract for America, yeah. It was such, it was exactly what you're describing, but it was it was in the pre-social media age. But he knew absolutely, I've never met him. He absolutely nailed it. He really, it, and you should go back and find when you have a quiet moment, and I know you don't have that many of them these days, find the videos 
of of the, the highlights of the contract. It was so well, it was exactly what you're describing. And he did succeed in changing the framing for a little while. Now the counter framing and the 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 ops and the the the, the you know the psyops and the and the the, all the stuff that is being done now in the media matters crap and the bots that didn't exist in those days. But in a way, on the other hand, you only had the major networks, which were so, even then they were so anti-conservative and they used to love to make fun of Gingrich. And of course they considered Reagan a genial retard. So, you know, take a look at, at those moments. I think you'll find it very engaging. Now back to the, the real problem that nonetheless does exist, which is that Okay, I don't think that if, you, if that if you did what you just described, that they would all of a sudden disconnect the entire Republican caucus from from Twitter. But it's not impossible. We also never thought that they would uh, stop a president of the United States from being on yeah. Twitter on Twitter either. Absolutely. So you know that's that's an important issue. I think for all of us. Um, I think anybody who's followed me on social media knows that. Um, I think that the next step is really an Internet Bill of Rights that sort of guarantees your your freedom to assemble online, your freedom of speech online. You know, um, a lot of different things that we've got to. I think need to have. We need to have a guarantee for people so that they know this isn't going to pass with the wind. But beyond that. We need to treat these um, social media companies specifically like we treat cell phone companies, you know, because if I was on the phone with you right now and Verizon jumped on and they said, hey, um, Ron and Robbie, you guys are banned from Verizon. And not only that, we also coordinated with T-Mobile and AT&T and you're banned from all cell phones now um, because we don't we don't agree with what you're talking about. Everybody would know that's absurd. Um, but when it's done with social media, for some reason, people don't seem to understand it, despite the fact that social media is our actual public square now. So I think we do have to treat it the way we treat cell phone companies. And I don't say that lightly because I'm not very I, I don't like regulation, but they, they've driven us to this place where it's necessary. And so and I think that's how things like this should work is we shouldn't overregulate things that are not a problem. But when something presents itself as a problem and it does not self-correct, we need to step in at that point. And so I do think we've got to do that with them. Outside of that, too, though, I am hard on places like Amazon and Google. I think that they need to be broken up into separate businesses. The Amazon cloud business by itself is a major national security concern to have it tied to the rest of Amazon's business. We've given them DOD contracts to give them access to things that we should be very concerned about the entirety of Amazon having control and potentially being able to use to leverage in different places because Amazon essentially, by virtue of giving them those cloud contracts, we've made them more powerful than almost every government on earth. I mean, you could even make an argument that maybe they are more powerful than any government on earth in many ways. Oh, um, sure. They are, they're wealthier than many than almost any government on exactly. earth. Exactly. But they are beholden, you know, to if, if if we are able to get them broken up. And I do believe it's very easy to prove that they've they violated every anti-competitive law we have in this country. I mean, I don't think that's a mystery at this point. They ran a business model where they ran at a loss for a decade, basically, and they did so to gain market share while they were doing it with the purpose of knowing that while you're doing this, running at a loss, you undercut your competitors, competitors can't keep up, they lose their butt and you end up gaining that market share. And then at the end of that, that's how we end up at the position we find ourselves now where Amazon crushes their earnings quarter after quarter after quarter because there's no competition left, you know, very little. It's, 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 you know, it's fringe at best. Even some of the major companies like Walmart, you know, they really don't compete with Amazon 
anywhere near what right. you would you would want. And so now we have them opening up into these other sectors too. This should be very scary. Amazon's going into the healthcare side of things. They're going into all these areas where I think it's it's very clear. And honestly, it'd be good for shareholders too. But just in on the purpose of you know competitiveness in America and having this actually run the right way, we need to break them up because we've got to understand too. A big reason why we see a large group of young people veering into socialism is because there's this idea that capitalism is unfair. And well, if you looked at Amazon on its face, you would think it is unfair, but that's a misunderstanding of capitalism. What Amazon did is a distortion of capitalism. It's not capitalism. What they did was violate well, let's the say law. It's a, let's say it's actually, it's a distortion of the free market. It is. In many 100%. respects, it is it is capitalism. If capital is allowed, if the it's people with the most right, if people with the most money are allowed to make the rules, yeah, then that is what you call capitalism. But it ain't what's called a free market. Exactly. Exactly. And so I sort of when I think you can, of, you can um, use that, Robbie. You can use that. I will. I will use that. But that's, that's exactly what it is, is. It's a distortion of the free market, and it's also it's sort of a naked capitalism that is not what we are you know, sort of based on here in the United States. We don't we don't just have, you know, or shouldn't have naked greediness that, that sort of dictates everything. Um, and I think that's another area where we have a lot of opportunity on the Republican side to sort of rebrand and reframe ourselves as the party of the people that is not beholden to corporate interests. Meanwhile, you've got BlackRock essentially running the Biden administration. You know, we need to draw those parallels and show them how these policies and people tied to the Democratic Party are the ones that are actually attacking their way of life, that are the reason you can't afford a home, that are the reason why you have trouble putting good food on the table for your kids. You know, So I think that's the lane of the future for us as a party is making sure that we are making a real difference with the, can you still hear me? Yeah, that we're yeah. making a real difference for the people and that we are driving in that lane of fighting for people. I, I, think, I, I think there's also another point. Someone made a, noted yesterday in a tweet that or a couple of days ago, that among the mistakes that Trump made, and he made many for all his many pluses, he never ever said no to a spending bill. He always talked, I'm not going to I'm not going to sign one of these emergencies, these continuing resolutions, they're killing us. They're when killing you us. Approve an emergency for the government. Um, the answer is never going to be when will the emergency end. the The answer is when will the next emergency be? How soon? Because it's they're they're going to keep. The more you give them power, it's like when you give a mouse a cookie. Have you ever read that book? It's a little bit after my time, but I uh, much I read it to my children. <laughs> yeah. So when, it's it's exactly how this all works. We're we're giving the mouse a cookie. They're going to want milk. That's you know, and we've got to stop giving them cookies. Okay. They're and not, that's and they're not asking for milk anymore. They're taking. We've got to give these. Stop giving the sewer rats cookies, and you know they're going to have to find their own food. It's it's we've gotten to a point, especially with inflation, what we're looking at here. It's untenable. We can't do this. You know, it's this is going to drive us into a really dark place. And I don't say that as an opposition party. I say that as a normal person that's looking around, and I see more for sale signs on houses. I think housing is the next bubble to pop. Because housing's been super hot, you know, and BlackRock and all these investment companies buying houses left and right. And they've priced things so far out of a lot of people's budget. 
I'm starting to see way more for sale signs than I've seen in a very long time. And say, it just makes me fearful. And then the other thing that we see too is, you know, Wells Fargo stopped their personal credit lines. Um, they cut them off last week, um, all of them. And they're calling the notes due. Wow. So um, that makes me nervous because 2008, that's a lot of, you know, Lehman Brothers did the same thing. And shortly afterwards, we saw banks um, start putting caps on how much cash you could take out in a day. I hope we're not headed that direction, but with inflation, it, we very likely could be going there. So we've got to be very careful with spending bills and make sure that we're spending more time looking at how we cut waste than we are on how we can spend more money. And I think that that's something we don't do now. Right now, the majority of the time is spent on where are we going to spend all this money? And we're treating it like, you know, a money tree. I mean, have you ever seen, yeah, you, you're a great meme guy. So you have to have seen the ones of uh, Powell with the, the money gun that uh, Powell makes the, the Fed makes the money go burr, you know, that's what we're doing. And it's, it's honestly like, it's a funny meme, but it's true. It's terrifying. I mean, the fact is it's not just any particular industry or housing or interest rates. The whole economic system is a bubble. Yeah. Uh, you talk about looking at waste. I mean, we're not talking about $700 hammers for the Defense Department. We're talking about contracts for tens of millions of dollars given out to consultants just because they're part of the, of the, of the political um, ecosystem in Washington or New York. Yep. Just plain going from, and, and the bailouts of Wall Street, the amount okay. of money that Wall Street has taken out of the American taxpayers' hands, are, you gonna, you, is, are we going to have a reading? I'm going to show you something. Show me. So you just reminded me. I'm reading this book by Carol Roth. On the oh, yes. Book. She sent it to me, too, and I've got to catch up with her. And so I, there's this, this endowments, estimates, okay? Look at Harvard. $40.9 billion in endowments, okay? And we're still giving them money from the government. Oh, for well, I, I, yeah, so I, I, I'm constantly getting texts from Princeton University asking me for annual giving. No, I never gave them much money. I, a, I don't have much money. And B, I never gave what, what you know my charitable donations that I do give them. I've not prioritized Princeton. I wrote back to, to, the, to the classmate who I knew. I said, Princeton has a $24 billion endowment and you're, and you're dunning me for 25 bucks for purposes of getting the uh, you know, participation rate up. I tried to raise money for, a, for a, a yeshiva in Brooklyn that was closed down last year and had to rent a place in Pennsylvania so their students could learn during COVID while, while New York was still, you know, in the red zone that it yeah. never seems to leave. And I couldn't, I couldn't raise $25,000 online, but, but it, you know, it's mind boggling. Listen, I've taken a lot of your time. It's great talking to you and meeting you in person. I hope we get to do it again soon. And, uh, and, you know, it, it, we'll be keeping an eye on this congressional race and doing everything, obviously, that we can. When I say we, I mean the American people whom I embody to support you in, 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 your, in your efforts. And um, anything else that you just, you know, you want to mention in terms of stuff that, that we- Well, no, I, I appreciate you having me on, you know, um, and 
I would just say if anybody's interested in finding out more about the raise, signing up to volunteer, you can volunteer from any state um, or if you want to donate, things along those lines. Everything can be found at Starbuck2022.com. There it is. Uh, getting, getting active is really the most important thing going into this election. And we're going to be helping, too. So if you volunteer, we're going to be finding ways to help other candidates, too, like school board races where they don't really have um, the national platform I have to be able to build a good volunteer base and things along those lines. So it would be very helpful if you if you, if you can't give money, give time. Um, and if you can give money, um, then I dare you to also give time. <laughs> and if you've got social media influence, give love. Exactly. Give links and support Bar uh, Robbie Starr. But great having you on, Hermano. We'll talk soon. Thank you. Awesome. Bye. Hey, thank you for listening to the Coleman Nation podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. For more information, please visit the show's website at coleman-nation.com. That's coleman-nation.com. Or you can visit my blog at likelihoodofconfusion.com. Join us next time on the Coleman Nation podcast and have a great day.